0: Hello and welcome. This is Gopi Vikrant and I lead personalization and customer experience analytics at ZS.
1: And I'm Arun Shastri. I lead the artificial intelligence practice at ZS.
0: We both work at ZS where we use our industry expertise, cutting edge analytics and technology to create real world solutions for our clients. And in this executive series, we'll be talking to leaders about how they're reimagining customer experiences at their organizations and the role personalization plays to drive customer loyalty. Arun and I are quite passionate about this topic as it is one that our clients often wrestle with. And as consumers, we are constantly reimagining how businesses can do a better job of engaging us. Joining us today is Professor Pradeep Chintagunta. Pradeep is a Joseph T. and Bernice S. Lewis Distinguished Service Professor of Marketing at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. Pradeep is interested in empirically studying consumer, agent, and firm behavior, and he has studied multiple industries like packaged goods, pharmaceuticals, technology, and online markets to answer questions related to pricing, advertising, customer behavior, and channels of distribution.
1: It's a pleasure to talk to you, Pradeep. I have known and admired Pradeep's smarts and intellect for over 30 years now. I should add that Pradeep's work has been cited close to 16,000 times which is simply stunning. An interesting fact about Pradeep, he has acted in a Bollywood movie.
2: Pradeep, welcome. Thank you, Gopi, and thank you, uh, Arun. Uh, it's, it's a great pleasure for me to be here on this executive series. It's always good for a marketing academic to talk about marketing-related issues. Uh, I also feel a very strong connection to ZS, having studied uh, both with Andy and Prabhat during my PhD. Uh, also Andy was my thesis advisor so uh, i think there's a, another connection there uh, and as arun just mentioned i think i've known him since the late 1980s although i think he has aged uh, uh, much less than i have so that's something i'd probably hold against him oh i think you're too kind
1: <laughs> pradeep uh, you know i'm noticing your uh, your recent research interests and your passion I'm seeing that you are spending a lot of time thinking about leveraging marketing principles to drive impact on small and medium businesses and entrepreneurs
2: in emerging economies.
1: Can you talk a little bit about that? I found that quite
2: fascinating. That's right. I think uh, as my research has evolved over time, uh, I have sort of obviously visited a number of different topics, but the, the most recent topic that I've been interested in Uh, is working with uh, mainly small businesses, although there are a few medium-sized businesses as well. Uh, Most of this work is happening in Africa. Uh, And it's sort of, uh, in terms of the work that is directly related, I think, to today's topic, uh, is a a, a project that we did where we designed an Android-based app uh, that could actually be used by these small businesses, and which is also related to uh, analytics. Um, The the kinds of businesses that we have focused uh, on typically earn, say, less than about $1,500 a year, uh, which is somewhere sort of in the second quintile or just below the second quintile in the income distribution uh, in Rwanda. Okay, so this is not uh, for companies that are are very large. Uh, So what does the app allow these businesses to do? It allows them to collect data essentially on their own business. Uh, So what their sales were every day, what prices they charged, uh, what their costs are for these products, uh, what were the profits, any promotions they ran, uh, the different types of customer segments they had, all this very, very basic stuff. The useful feature of the app is what um, uh, we, uh, as as researchers, following uh, terminology from uh, uh, folks like Tom Davenport, refer to as Analytics 1.0. Uh, so, Analytics 1.0 is what uh, these uh, uh, these uh, firms then get access to. So, in other words, what does this mean? Uh, basically, the app collates the information that these folks are inputting and presents it back to them in a manner that they could potentially use for decision-making. Okay. So, for example, when they input the sales over time, what the app will then give them is, say, a sales or a profit trend over time. It will also tell them what their profits are for individual products over time. And this type of information, we then study whether or not having access to it changes the decision-making of these businesses. That's essentially what we try to do. And so to try and make the measurement, we ran a randomized controlled field experiment with about 250 firms in the treated group uh, that actually got access to the app and about 250 firms in what we call a comparison group or a control group that didn't get access to the app. So the idea is that uh, we wanted to study the performance of the treatment and the comparison group before and after they adopted the treatment group adopted the app. Uh, so what we uh, find, which I think uh, we found uh, uh, quite interesting, was that six months after the app, uh, adoption of the app, uh, the companies in the treated group had grown their sales by uh, between 35 and 40% uh, and their profits had increased by about 30% relative to the companies in the control group. So that's essentially what we found. Uh, there are several mechanisms uh, behind this that I think uh, uh, are, are worth learning and understanding about. But at, at least the top line results of, of, of what we find is there's an increase in both sales and, and profit. So the idea, I think, generalizing beyond just these small firms in Rwanda is that if you could give access uh, or, or to analytics, albeit very basic analytics, uh, to these small businesses, they might actually benefit quite a bit from having such access.
1: So it's uh, data-driven decision-making uh, uh, at
2: work, so to speak, and uh, here's the proof. Yeah, I think the, our, our idea was to essentially make this you know, uh, accessible to businesses that typically don't have such kind of access. You've been studying consumer behavior for many years, uh, Pradeep,
1: and um, as you reflect back uh, through your academic um, career, on what dimensions do you think consumer behavior has evolved? And let's say focus on the last decade. In what ways do you think consumer behavior has evolved over the last decade?
2: Uh, yeah so that's a very interesting question and you know having to reflect back on on, on 30 years is uh, is is not always uh, always easy but I, I must say by far sort of the biggest evolution uh, that i think i have observed uh, is that people have and consumers have generally evolved from being sort of passive uh, consumers of firms actions to becoming more actively engaged in facilitating firms actions let me try and explain that a little bit Uh, So one can think of this perhaps most easily in the context of the four P's uh, of marketing that we're all familiar with, which is the product, price, uh, promotion, and uh, place or channels. Um, So uh, let's focus for for the time being on the product or service. There was a time that one had to choose, for example, uh, while driving uh, in in our cars uh, from a small menu of radio stations that were available on the FM or the AM band. Uh, And essentially, whatever was was being offered, we had to make a choice and then we would go off listening to these songs. Today, Spotify can create a customized radio station based on the songs that you typically listen to. And as your tastes change, the offerings can change accordingly as well. So the company is able to uh, keep up. uh, And the reason why the company is able to keep up with these changing tastes is because consumers, by virtue of being on the service, End up sharing the data on their preferences with Spotify, so it is this exchange of information in one direction, and then the customization or the personalization on the other side, which I think is really one of the big, um, uh, I think one of the big features in how uh, consumer behavior has evolved. I mean, uh, I can sort of give more examples about this. Uh, but one other dimension, and then perhaps you know, if you, if you want to talk a little bit more, we can talk about it. Uh, one other dimension where uh, I think things have changed quite a bit, or uh, uh, is in the aspect of providing real-time feedback to companies that has significantly empowered consumers. Right. So in the old days, uh, you know, you had to look at the packaging of a product and hunt for the one eight hundred number to then call up the company. To try and sort of complain to them about you know, some product problem you might have with the product. Um, uh, and, and, and that was a somewhat onerous process and so consumers were not very willing or likely to do that. Today, however, all the consumer has to do is to send out a tweet and that will basically elicit an expeditious response from the company because the company is very eager to avoid any public fallout uh, from an unhappy customer. So I think both these things where I think the firm and the consumer are now jointly creating what the consumer uh, eventually ends up consuming and then the ability of the consumer to actually make um, his or her displeasure felt to the company. I think these are perhaps like two big dimensions that uh, we have seen an evolution on.
1: Pradeep just to add to that point that you're reflecting uh, this This idea of uh, making personalized recommendations or customized recommendations to you as an individual customer and then giving you an opportunity to react and tell me, did you like it? Did you not like it? Thumbs up, thumbs down. That's another very quick way of you being able to give me feedback. And I I suppose that's also something that uh, you're
2: you're mentioning in your comments. Absolutely. I think the the ability to then take that information and then think of ways in which perhaps you can either improve your product, uh, or perhaps you know think of you know, other customers who might not have such a problem with your product. These are all things that I think uh, uh, that, that I think firms firms can do. And you see this in in, in many other uh, contexts as well, right? So you yeah, see this in the context of uh, you know messaging or promotions. I mean, we are all familiar with. Um, uh, with 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 what happened with Cambridge Analytica and the Trump campaign in 2016 uh, where the idea was to somehow use the information from, uh, from these, uh, these consumers to try and tailor not just who you actually target but the kind of information you provide in the ad that you target to different people. And so I think there are many, many different contexts within which you see this in- interplay between the firm and the consumer.
1: Let me tackle one other aspect of this notion of customization and meeting the customer where they are. We've talked to several executives uh, on this podcast from Walmart, City, Sweetgreen. And one common theme that kept coming up was this whole idea of rewiring their business to meet the customers where they are. Okay, so it could be uh, be just, I'm I'm going to deliver to your home or your office if you're a food and beverage. It could be that you purchase something online and you pick up in store. In whatever ways right people of these businesses are reorganizing any hints that you saw even before the pandemic that this is something that was shaping up uh, to happen
2: and uh, where do we go from here yeah so in my mind i think um, the main job of the marketer uh, is to try and uh, ensure that the customers that the marketer has does not have to make a compromise when using their product or service. So breaking the compromise, I think, is a big role of the marketer. So let's think about this. Let's think about this in the context of, say, grocery products. Uh, let's say you run out of detergent. You can either buy a bottle or packet of, of, of Tide, you can either buy that uh, at your local convenience store uh, or drugstore, which is right next door, um, or you can drive, say, 10 miles to a Walmart, Uh, to buy the same uh, to buy the same product now what is the trade-off that you're forcing the customer to make in this case if you want to save time then you're better off going to the convenience store or the drugstore because that way you don't have to drive the 10 miles you can just go next door but the compromise you make as a result of that is that you might have to pay a higher price whereas the 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 trade-off with going to walmart is that you might be able to get a lower price but then you'll have to travel 10 miles Okay, Now, what uh, companies like Amazon have taught the consumer is that you don't have to make that compromise, that you could potentially get the product at a a lower price, and it's also delivered conveniently to your house. You don't have to wait till next week that the product will actually show up the next day. So as long as you're willing to make that short-term trade-off, you're able to get the product with both the convenience as well as the low price. And I think this notion of breaking compromises, uh, I think is sort of central to a, a, a lot of things that marketers are constantly thinking about. Uh, another example that, that, that I really like, and this was a case I used to teach several, uh, several years ago, uh, is, is in the context of pizza. Right? I mean, most of us, we, we, we love pizza. Um, the, the, the thing, of course, is that uh, you could in, in the old days, you could either order uh, piping hot pizza which is delivered to your home. Uh, the pizza tasted great, but if you lived far away from the pizzeria, it was less convenient because you had to wait uh, till, till the pizza actually got delivered. The alternative was that you could buy frozen pizza. Frozen pizza was very convenient because it was always in your, uh, uh, in your refrigerator. But the downside is that the product often tasted like the cardboard in which it was packaged in. Right? And so the, 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 the kind of compromise that the customer had to make was either the great taste or the convenience. Now then along comes a, com- comes a company like, uh, uh, like DiGiorno. And what DiGiorno essentially did was that they said, look, we're going to try to break that compromise where we'll give you a great tasting pizza, but which is also convenient. Right, And so my sense going forward in, th- in terms of thinking about where we might be going is that the marketers who are better able to identify compromises that consumers are making when uh, when they are buying their products or services and looking for ways to break this compromise, those are sort of the marketers which I, which I think will be uh, much more successful uh, than those that force consumers to constantly be making a compromise. At least that's sort of my general takeaway of this, uh, on this particular idea.
0: That's uh, that's very interesting, Pradeep. So when the pandemic hit, we saw industries scramble to establish direct channels with the customer. Um, it could be sneakers, it could be apparel. In most cases, these were an addition to whatever they were doing uh, as a traditional retailer-based distribution. How do you see this trend evolve with firms and consumers? And, and maybe as a counterpoint, what happens if the firm's don't do this, what happens to them, to the firms who don't do this uh, particular direct-to-consumer relationship?
2: Yeah, that's a, uh, I think that's uh, an excellent question. Uh, I, I think the, uh, the way at least I try to uh, consider this, this, this issue is to try and distinguish between the two imper- imperatives uh, that drive the need for this direction, direct connection with the customer. Right. The, the first is the need for what I would call transaction access. Okay, which is uh, the ability to transact with the customer. And the second is the need for data and insights into behavior. Right? So these, to me, are sort of the two uh, main imperatives. Uh, with the pandemic, these two uh, drivers got somewhat conflated. Right? So take the example of, say, luxury goods players. Okay, so these folks, uh, prior to the pandemic, had their own exclusive showrooms uh, under their own brand. So if you were a company like Coach, uh, you had close to a thousand stores and each of these stores represented a contact point for you both to transact with the customer as well as to get a better understanding of what the customer wanted. Okay? What the pandemic did is that it cut off this access to the stores. So the customers couldn't go into the stores anymore. So the motivation for these players to go direct, uh, especially via the online channel, was the immediate imperative of trying to facilitate the access right provide a channel by which the customer could now transact with the company because without that they were not going to get any sales but i think the other motivation which is which is also really critical to keep in mind especially when we think about moving beyond the pandemic is this need to develop a direct relationship uh, with the customer so as to better understand the customer and then draw insights from the data that you get from the customer uh, uh, that you can, you can leverage via this direct connection. Okay, uh, So uh, the other benefit obviously to the firm from doing something like this is that they don't have to depend upon an intermediary to get the data because oftentimes a lot of companies have to depend upon intermediate market research firms to gather that information. Okay. So uh, my sense is that even after the, uh, the, the pandemic or in the absence of the pandemic, the imperative for data and insight uh, and useful information will persist. right? So firms who are interested uh, in continuing this flow of information, they will continue to try and go direct to the consumer. Okay? Uh, so even if they're not interested in the transactional part of the channel, I think it's important to have this direct connection to ensure that the information aspect of the channel is, is still preserved. So if you think about again uh, my example of, uh, of, of, of tight deter- detergent, uh, PNG may not necessarily want to uh, 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 you know sell directly to consumers their, their detergent products uh, although I think there are some of their newer technologies that they are trying to do that. Uh, but nevertheless, they need to have that direct connection with the consumer. So this could be either uh, in the form of the tied laundromats that they now have, which are offline stores where you can actually go do your laundry, by which they can actually gather a lot of information about uh, the fabric care needs of consumers, or other things, other properties like that PNG has. So for example, I think they have this website called Being Girl, which is uh, dedicated mainly uh, to, 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 to young girls. So they could engage... Uh, and learn about um uh, and learn about various aspects that that young girls and young women go through and by 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 that same idea PNG can learn about uh, you know demand, say, uh, f- uh, demand uh, for example products like A- uh, always and tab packs and things like that right and so having these these direct connections i think provides both the insight aspect uh, but i think during the pandemic it also provided so the this this uh, this transaction aspect there is one other reason which, which I think companies um, have to think about this direct connection with consumers more. Uh, and that I think comes up, uh, is, is coming about because of online advertising and privacy. Uh, I think these two uh, are, are, are very important things to keep in mind. So for example, if you follow the moves of companies like Google and Apple uh, towards uh, uh, being more sort of privacy conscious and doing away with advertising associated with, say, third-party cookie tracking, um, the, now the, the the companies can uh, the, the advertiser has to depend on uh, things that are uh, more like l- like-minded consumer pools that Google has been talking about, or they have to be able to generate uh, a first-party data, which is data that are actually being generated on their website. And for that, having this ability to form this direct connection and get insights. Uh, from uh, the consumer behavior, I think, is going to be be important. So those, to me, perhaps, are are some of the drivers of this need for the direct connection between the consumer and the firm.
0: Yeah, yeah. So switching gears a little bit, uh, Pradeep, when we look at uh, APAC markets um, like India and China, we see that they're largely mobile and digital uh, markets now. And businesses are forging relationships with consumers in ways that are fundamentally different than how they did it in the US. For example, let's take social commerce, uh, which is completely different on how it's operating in some of these uh, markets. So do you see any early indications from your research on how social commerce or other uh, uh, digital commerce uh, activities can change consumer behavior in the US and are there any examples that, that you have uh, recently seen?
2: So let me uh, talk more sort of generally about social commerce. Uh, I have done some work on, um, uh, on sites like uh, like Taobao, uh, which, I can, which I can talk about, although they may not be centrally related to this issue, but let me first talk a little bit about social commerce. Okay? So obviously social commerce has many, many different de- definitions. If you try to look up the meaning of social commerce, you're going to get like a ton of different uh, definitions. Uh, but you can think about uh, uh, social commerce in in some sort of a perhaps a more narrow uh, narrow way as the subset of electronic commerce that involves uh, using some social media to assist in sort of the online buying and selling of products uh, and services right so that's sort of one way in which you might want to think about uh, uh, social commerce which is that it is the intersection of uh, social media and e-commerce uh, and essentially, what you're doing is that you're leveraging uh, these, these, these social interactions uh, as a way, perhaps, of uh, of engendering and furthering uh, the objective of the firm, which is the commerce aspect of it, right? So that's sort of the, the, the broad way, at least, that I like to think about social com- uh, commerce. Now, the, the interesting thing is in APAC countries, specifically countries like China and, and, and India as well, it turns out that social media platforms are much more multifunctional than they are in the US. Uh, So um, if if you think about the the most popular e-commerce platforms in China, uh, they tend to be very heavily integrated with the most popular social networks. Okay, So in effect, what we have are apps within apps. Uh, In other words, you have an app to buy products within your social media app. And I think this integration uh, simplifies the sort of the entire e-commerce process, making it much easier for consumers to purchase products and interact directly with the brands. Okay, uh, And so I think this has basically caused this big increase in, in social commerce in, in countries like China, and I think it accounts for some significant chunk now, maybe 12-13% of all uh, e-commerce in China uh, happens to be in the domain of social commerce. Uh, I think um, uh, in, in more, more closer uh, closer to the US. Uh, I think uh, Instagram has a checkout feature uh, that allows you now to uh, uh, users to sort of select products from from the shoppable posts that get created uh, on Instagram, and so they can now make their purchases without leaving the app. However, I think most uh, observers view this as being uh, uh, not at the same level of integration, perhaps uh, as it is with uh, uh, with, with with various. Uh, uh, th- you know, various uh, sites that are available uh, available in China. And I think also during the pandemic, uh, Facebook set up something called Facebook Shops, which allows uh, businesses to open storefronts uh, for free on, uh, on the Facebook site. Uh, the important thing you want to draw from all this is, you know, why is this happening? Right. So, I mean, we, we see this happen as a phenomenon, but why is this, why is this thing happening in the first place? Uh, and I think the answer to this is to look at what I would uh, call the customer journey, right? And uh, yeah, the customer journey is a fairly well-known concept. Uh, but if you look at the customer journey today, it usually makes a, a social media stop, right? In the course of the customer journey. Uh, so this interse- the increasing intersection uh, between the customer journey and the social network means that when you integrate these two, in the words of my, my my answer to the previous statement you're breaking a compromise right you don't have to leave say the social media app to do your shopping or to leave the shopping app to go on to go on to social media and again uh, i think what companies are trying to do is that they're trying to leverage this idea that you know these two are uh, much closer together and social media being part of the customer journey today means that i think you uh, you know you need to take that into account. The, the one uh, dimension though which which I think um, uh, perhaps we don't talk as much when we talk about social commerce uh, is to be uh, is is to think about the B two B aspect of this and specifically I'm I'm thinking about uh, a site like LinkedIn uh, and B two B sales uh, because uh, LinkedIn can actually be a, a very useful platform for generating leads uh, and promoting B2B business, right? And and so I I, I think uh, actually today, it perhaps generates more leads uh, than companies like Facebook or Twitter, uh, or or maybe even the uh, the corporate blogs. Uh, So uh, the fact that LinkedIn has such global scale and it taps into the B2B world, I think is really a, 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 a very sort of a useful thing to think about going forward in potentially the role of social commerce in this broad uh, arena of e-commerce. So uh, to me, I think if, if, uh, if one is paying attention, it would be to the B2B side besides just the B2C side.
0: Right, right. So Pradeep, another uh, team that we heard from United Airlines, Walmart and others is their focus on personalization. What do consumers look for in personalization today? What's going right and what's not working according to you as, uh, as companies try to do this?
2: Yeah, I think, you know, uh, clearly this is something that I think companies have, have, uh, have sort of recognized. Uh, and I think, you know, uh, this is not that they haven't really recognized it in the past, but I think they're increasingly recognizing it now because I think of, of the availability of the, of, of the tools and the technologies that, that help help them to do that. So, I think again, uh, the, uh, the companies that perhaps uh, tend to be more successful here are those that uh, I think have a better understanding of the entire customer journey. Okay, so if you think about you know, what a lot of organizations uh, end up doing, they tend, they tend to sort of divvy up the customer journey uh, under different, uh, different sort of areas within the organization. So one part of the organization doesn't necessarily look at sort of the entire customer journey. So perhaps someone's focused on the booking aspect of the, uh, of the travel journey and someone else is uh, focused on what happens, you know, as, as, as a consequence of uh, the actual travel, what is sort of the satisfaction with the travel, etc. And I think companies that start thinking of, of, of this as one single customer journey are perhaps more likely uh, to be successful uh, than those that, that are not. Right. So, I mean, uh, you know, take, take, take the exa- example again of a, of a flyer's customer journey with, with an airline. Uh, the journey usually begins by recognizing the need uh, for, for, for travel, right? Uh, and it ends perhaps with the sort of post-travel advocacy or potential booking of subsequent flights, et cetera. So that would be the customer journey. So what, uh, what, what I would think the, the airline should be doing is by essentially understanding and responding to each stage, but by sharing the information across these different stages, rather than sort of doing them uh, uh, separately or, or, or step by step. Because by doing that, sometimes you might miss sort of the bigger uh, picture that might, be, um, that, that might be actually driving the behavior of the consumer. So I would say uh, personalization is great. Uh, but personalization, which essentially uh, breaks up the customer journey, is perhaps not such a not such a great idea. I think the extreme of this, uh, however, with personalization, uh, is that you have to be careful that it doesn't get too creepy for the customer. Yeah, that you know, uh, an extreme level of personalization could basically end up creeping out the customer. And an example of that is this whole retargeting that you see happen online, right? You see a pair of shoes. Uh, on zappos or amazon then you go to other websites uh, and then you see these pair of shoes following you uh, right and they they just don't give up they keep following you till you know perhaps you basically shut down your browser or you succumb and buy the buy the shoes now some people i think might uh, might might enjoy enjoy the chase right being chased around by, by by a pair of shoes but others might find it totally creepy so i think When you're thinking about personalization, you have to be careful as an organization not to sort of overstep your bounds, right? Not to sort of try and get to the point where uh, where you end up creeping out the customer.
1: So, Pradeep, I was just reflecting on uh, your comment about breaking up the journey. You know, this is, uh, from my experience, fairly true on the B2B world. I mean, if you're a large enterprise calling on small and medium businesses, if you break up the journey as you go generate the leads, somebody else calls on the leads to try to qualify them, somebody else converts the leads, somebody else nurtures the relationships, somebody else, somebody else, somebody else, Then you always leave inefficiencies. And that's where conflicts arise too. Accountability issues arise and more. We are increasingly seeing firms think of these concepts like demand centers. It's neither sales nor marketing. It sort of like brings sales expertise with the marketing mindset. You're somehow bringing these things together. So as you were Talking about that customer and how the customers are—you uh, don't break up the journey, but think of this as one seamless thing. I, I couldn't help but
2: think of that parallel uh, in the in the B two B world. Absolutely, I think internal conflict within companies, uh, I think, is something that you definitely want to minimize. Right, that's not something that you know is is ever good for the organization. And I think describing it the way that you just described, I think is really, uh, uh, is going to be a a very important thing for customers to be, uh, so firms to be cognizant about uh, as they move forward with some of the personalization at least.
0: So so Pradeep, just to double click on that thought. So what happens to the firms who don't invest in building the direct to consumer relationship or think through this as a unified journey and personalized, right, so what's the downside of this?
2: Uh, yeah, so I mean, in my mind, uh, you know, um, I, I think one of the challenges that, that, that people are going to face, uh, especially the, the, the firms involved in these businesses, is the fact that, you know, uh, if, if someone else is doing a better job of this and you're not, there's going to be, first of all, you know, this whole competitive landscape, which I think you should be very cognizant about, Right. Uh, now, why do you now have to worry about the competitor? You have to worry about the competitor because you're really not taking into account what it is that this particular uh, customer customer group uh, is looking for, and maybe your, your, your competitor is doing a better job. So I think uh, you know, it, it gets tied in both to the fact that you know, you're going to have customers who are perhaps not going to be as happy as they could have been, uh, you're going to have competitors who are probably going to be happy, and all this is going to essentially end up with with the, the company's metrics or you know, c- company's uh, bottom line perhaps not looking as, as good. So I think you know it's it's important for uh, uh, I think it's important for firms uh, to essentially uh, sort of keep keep uh, uh, keep focusing uh, on this element of uh, element of personalization while at the same time making sure that they don't sort of violate, uh, violate the privacy. And I think the other reason why this is going to be increasingly important is also the fact that a lot of the mass media that companies typically sort of fell back on, like you know, television advertising and the like, uh, increasingly that's becoming, uh, becoming an issue uh, because first of all, on the one hand, they're becoming more expensive, but on the other hand, you know, trying to sort of pitch something to the average consumer is not going to work as successfully as trying to make sure that each consumer gets what he or she is looking for. Right? And, I, uh, and so I think both of this, this, this inability, I think, to use the traditional tools one had uh, uh, available, as well as the fact that the way the consumers are thinking has evolved, as we talked about earlier, as, as well as the firms getting savvier and your competitors getting savvier, uh, I think all these things suggest that it's it's going to be important for firms to do it. And if you don't, then potentially you're going to pay, pay the price in the marketplace. Advertising.
1: We've talked about advertising. We've touched about it on a couple of occasions. Uh, let me come back to that. One of the things we heard from Walmart is that they have a quest to, in fact, personalize and make relevant the ads that they deliver to you on Walmart.com. What are some insights uh, from that you can give us, uh, share with our audience on how consumer brands are changing advertising, and what does this mean for the advertising industry overall? Uh, not just creepy uh, shoes following you everywhere, but uh, things make you know coming to life for you on Walmart.com. We're uh, we looking at sh- some big shifts to come in the industry in the next few years. Yeah, I,
2: I think there are. Obviously, many, many forces at, uh, at play here. Um, in the past, you know, TV advertising has played a very, very important role in the marketing mix, especially for uh, packaged goods companies. Uh, but that model w- with the primacy of TV advertising, I think, is increasingly coming under pressure. Um, uh, I don't know whether you've seen this, but there's a recent paper by two of my colleagues, uh, Brad Shapiro and Gunter Hitch, uh, along with uh, Anna Tuckman from Kellogg, where they looked at uh, hundreds of brands and tried to measure the television advertising elasticities for these brands. And what they found was that these ad elasticities were actually much smaller than what had previously been measured. Okay, so this, I think, for the advertising industry is a very sobering finding. uh, And I think this also stands somewhat in contrast uh, with what people are uh, seeing and finding online. Uh, There, I think, you know, you see the smaller separation between exposure to, say, advertising and the actual action that might happen online. Uh, And so uh, I think marketers are increasingly under the belief uh, that, you know, um, that that you just have this better ability to measure these ad effects. Uh, And as a consequence, I think they have moved budgets in that direction. Uh, But CPG brands, I think, still have to make the trade-off between mass media and mass exposure on TV, because I think for things like awareness at the top of the funnel, I think those things are still going to be important. Uh, Whereas as you keep going further and further down the funnel, uh, I think uh, this is where um, some of these other um, uh, ways of communicating with the customer is going to become uh, more important. The challenge for the marketer then is things like attribution and measurement, because with all these multiple touch points, you know, it's becoming more and more difficult to say, attribute a given action uh, to either the fact that they became aware uh, due to advertising or because they saw the coupon just before they made a purchase. And I think that is going to be the challenge. Now, where Walmart can actually play, I think, a, a fairly big and a significant uh, role is that it has the benefit of both online as well as offline presence, uh, largely because it, I think it's, it's got like, uh, say, 10,000 stores or more. Uh, And so they have the ability to track purchase behavior, both in the online context as well as in the offline context. And they clearly also can look at the offline exposure, or sorry, the online exposure that these consumers are are getting prior to purchase. So if they can strategically uh, sort of leverage this dual exposure to online and offline advertising and the dual purchase uh, online and offline, I think they're going to become uh, an increasingly important platform for uh, CPG players to be uh, to be present on. Um, and I think, you know, obviously a lot depends upon how well they can harness all these data, uh, because I think, you know, they're still way behind Amazon. I think Amazon's advertising business, I guess, is, you know, an order of magnitude, maybe $12, 13000000000 billion. I think Walmart is perhaps closer to a to billion dollars. I think they still have a long way to go, but I think they have the potential of harnessing this. So this combination of dual exposure and, and dual uh, purchase, online and offline, I think is, is where perhaps Walmart uh, and companies like that are going to play a, a bigger role. And I think CPG companies are going to benefit as a consequence of the data and information they can get through uh, like uh, the platforms like Walmart Media Group and, and, and such.
0: So Pradeep, you have been studying consumer behavior for the last 25 years. Um, if you were to flash forward and imagine the consumer industry five years from now, and let's say there are no constraints on technology and data, what are your top three predictions about how uh, customer experience and personalization will change?
2: Yeah, I, I can talk a little bit about you know what will likely have more likely to happen on the on the on the firm side. I mean, to try and predict what what consumers will do, I think that's uh, you know. That's like the multi-billion dollar question. So perhaps we, we, we look at one side of the equation and then, perhaps, and, and then try and project uh, what might happen on the other side. Uh, yeah, this is, I think, a, a, a tough question, but an important question. So one thing I think we can be uh, sure of is that there's going to be sort of this continued churn in the landscape. Right On the one, on the one uh, hand or on one side, data are becoming more abundant and technologies are becoming more sophisticated uh, to do things like personalization. But on the other side, I think there's an increasing concern about issues like privacy. And so unless there are some specific global standards around this that everyone can coalesce around, I think consumers and firms might have to make some tough decisions going forward. Uh, Firms uh, to try and figure out how much they're going to leverage the data and customers, how much they're going to... I'm not sure whether I'm using the word correctly, but patronized firms that actually use this information, right? And so I think this is going to be an issue that both firms as well as consumers are going to face. Uh, I think the the second uh, and and perhaps more important issue for marketers is, I think, uh, around how they're going to be able to leverage big data in conjunction with, with small data. And this small data can be things like surveys, ethnographic research, et cetera, uh, and by doing this jointly, uh, I think what they, should they, I hope they can develop are what I call smart data platforms. Okay, so uh, let me give you an example. Uh, so uh, the insight that, that the soda that we are selling uh, is too heavy to carry out in, say, a 24-pack crate uh, when it's packaged in glass bottles. Uh, that can only be obtained if you're sitting in the store and observing the consumer trying to sort of lift a crate of 24 bottles of, of, of soda right And I don't think any uh, observational data will help you with that kind of an insight. And we know that you know uh, Pepsi actually benefited from an insight like that where they had an executive in the store observing, uh, a customer trying to lift a, a very heavy crate of, of, of glass bottles, and then realize that one of the things limiting the amount of soda being bought uh, was sh- simply the weight of the soda. And so by reducing the weight, you're now going to increase the sales of your product. And I think the ability to combine that kind of, uh, of, of insight, which I think, which are refer to as small data, along with the large databases of observational information that we are getting, I think companies that are able to do that, uh, I'm sort of really looking forward to how they're going to be able to leverage this um, uh, to, 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 I think, better meet the needs of of customers uh, at the end. And then I I think my uh, third prediction on this uh, is more of a hope, really. Um, I think, uh, I hope that technology and data can and will address bigger problems that society faces today. There's poverty, hunger, inequality, healthcare, et cetera. Uh, and uh, ultimately, unless all of us prosper, none of us really does, um, and, but I'm hopeful that as I think these techniques get better and better, uh, and we are able to better, able to personalize and meet the needs of consumers, we'll be able to meet the needs of all types of consumers, and through that, uh, we will all sort of prosper. Uh, so that's my hope. Uh, I'm not sure whether that necessarily answers your question, uh, but those were some, some thoughts that, that I had on that. Thanks,
0: Pradeep. And uh, just to uh, summarize for the audience, some of the key themes that came out today is um, real-time feedback from customers and the need for firms to react to it is uh, driving a lot of change in how consumers and businesses are interacting. And uh, this uh, this notion of breaking compromises about how um, customers are uh, buying or purchasing different items, and uh, that is pushing businesses to make sure that um, customers are not having a trade-off to uh, make the purchase at one location versus a different location, and that's pushing them to make sure that their services are available wherever the customer wants them. And also this uh, concept of of, uh, connected and unified journey versus uh, silo journeys that uh, enterprises used to have previously um, is also going to play a big Role and that's where personalization and personalized advertising um, across different platforms um, is is also is also coming up. And some of your predictions around um, leveraging both big data and small data and triangulating specific customer level insights to um, offer up new products and services is also going to be uh, key as uh, as consumer behavior changes and evolves. And as we look into the next few years. Is that a, a good summary of the different things that we touched upon today?
2: Absolutely, it sounds much better coming from you than it comes from me.
1: <laughs> thank you so much. Uh, every conversation with you is enlightening, and this was no different. Uh, thank you so much for taking time to share your wisdom and insights with the uh, with our audience, and uh, really appreciate it.
2: Not at all. Anytime, you're most welcome.